Good morning. It is such a joy to be here with you all this morning. Not just because we're in the same denomination, not just because we worship the same Jesus together, um, but because you all, as was just shared, have contributed in your prayers, in your encouragement, even in your finances to what God is doing to advance his kingdom all the way in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. You've sent members of your own church, and because of this, we feel deeply the words that Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 4. Can I read those to you to encourage you? It's not my text this morning, but let me just, just feel the encouragement from the saints of Christ in Ethiopia, but also from God himself. This is what Paul says. It was kind of you to share in my trouble. You sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit to increase to your credit. I've received full payment and more. Having been well supplied by the gifts you sent with Epaphroditus. Aren't you glad we don't send gifts with Epaphroditus anymore? Oh, it's easier now. And they are a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply Every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's what you all have done. You all are our, to use Paul's word, you are partners in the gospel. And I, I don't say this trivially. I say this with sincerity. We feel God's faithfulness to us through you. And we, when we are tempted to doubt that God is faithful, we think of your church, your gifts, your prayers, your encouraging emails. So thank you for taking part of what God is doing to advance his kingdom in Ethiopia. With that said, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2, towards the end of your Old Testament, or if you're anything like me, go to that table of contents in the front so you don't spend the first 20 minutes of the sermon looking for it. <laughs> Habakkuk chapter 2, our attention this morning will be spent on verses 12 through 14. <clears throat> These are the words of God. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor merely for fire and the nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord <clears throat> as the waters cover the sea. These are the words of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we do, we do pray that you would be <clears throat> with us by your spirit this morning, that Christ himself would come and preach peace to our souls. We pray that we would leave saying that Christ, the good shepherd, led us by still pastures and 
still wanders in green pastures. Lord, would we say that our souls were refreshed by Christ himself through these words? Would you, Lord, would you in my weakness cause Christ to be exalted and magnified this morning? That his gospel would refresh our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. Habakkuk wrote these words that we just read amid a confusing and a discouraging and a troubling time. See, the Lord had just revealed to him that Babylon, a ruthless nation, would soon invade his homeland. Can you imagine what that would feel like to hear that from God? Habakkuk describes for us how he felt about that moment in chapter 3, verse 16. He says this, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. And then, as reality sunk in further for this prophet, his trembling lips turned into questioning lips. As he looked to heaven and he says this in chapter 1, God, why are you idle? Why do you remain silent when the righteous are consumed by the wicked? Does that feel relatable at all? As we reflect on these words by this prophet written, would you believe it, 2,600 years ago, they feel incredibly relevant to our own Times. We're struck by how relevant they are to us. In a world characterized more by war and division and corruption than joy and peace and unity. We see more hate and hurt and pain than justice and love. And like Habakkuk, we have far more questions than we have answers, do we not? And while Habakkuk faces a literal Babylon in this text, we're confronted, are we not, by a world that is hostile to the kingdom of Christ. And that's why the New Testament authors will use the metaphor of Babylon to describe the world and worldliness. Those who, like Babylon, strive for their own glory in this world and not the glory of Christ. And this striving for human glory is something that God hates at the core of his being. And he will not allow those who seek to make a name for themselves in this world to stand. He will not share his glory with another. And that's why chapter 2 is filled with judgment oracles against Babylon. Because God alone is worthy of glory and honor and praise and he will have no rival. And so these words of judgment are actually meant to serve the prophet Habakkuk, and they serve us by extension. In the dark nights we face, when we throw questions at heaven and feel there's no answer, this chapter tells us God is not silent like Habakkuk accused him of being. No, no, no. God is not ignorant to the suffering of his people or to the wickedness of those who oppress his people. God knows the kingdom of Christ is constantly under assault by the kingdom of man. He sees it. He hears us. And he will act to bring an end to the sin and injustice that stands against his church. Why will he do this? Look at verse 14. He's determined that his glory and not man's glory will fill his earth as the waters cover the sea. 
We could say it like this. God, given our emphasis on missions this morning, God comforts his people in the midst of severe opposition by reminding them of the success of international missions. Babylon will fall, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God comforts his people in the midst of severe opposition with the promise of the success of international missions. The kingdoms of this earth rise and fall, political parties come and go, economic hardships ebb and flow, all the while God stands unfazed. His kingdom will win. And these ancient but all too relevant words then, our compassionate and kind and loving Father draws near to us in our heartache and confusion and questions and assures us that no matter how dark the night is, he is working all things in this world to build his kingdom and to further his gospel. And we can trust in his good intentions even when we don't understand the reason for them. Babylon will fall. The kingdom of man will fall. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So let's consider this text together, shall we? And as we do, we'll see both of these kingdoms. This kingdom of man and the kingdom of Christ. In verses 12 through 14. And then after that, we'll look back earlier in chapter 2 and see how we can make What God says in these verses is more practical for our lives. Let's start by considering the kingdom of man in verses 12 through 14. Look at how Babylon is described here. Do you see it? They use others for their own advantage and to accomplish their own selfish ends. They build their towns with blood and they found their cities on iniquity. How do they build Babylon? On the blood and backs of others. They say, my kingdom come, my will be done, and you're just a tool for me to use for my glory to cover the earth. Does that sound familiar? We see it clearly in this text, but it's made even more explicit back in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, when it says this. He drags them out with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in with his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. For by them... He lives in luxury, (laughs) and by them, his food is made rich. What's described here is disturbing. You see, Babylon, in order to show their dominance over the nations they captured, would take their captives and make them slaves and drag them back to Babylon. And do you know how they did it? They took a fish hook and put it through their mouths and out their noses as they Fish them back to Babylon. A sin, a city built upon blood and iniquity. And as they did this with one nation after another after another, Babylon's true intentions became clear. They had their eyes set on world domination. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. His greed is wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects for his own all peoples. So like death that swallows up all people until his power is felt by all, wicked Babylon seeks to extend its kingdom to the ends of the earth, conquering all nations because the greed of the kingdom of man is never satisfied. 
but we find their labors are futile because the Lord is not in their labors. Look at verse 13. He labors merely for fire, and he wearies himself for nothing. You see, from Babylon's perspective, as they conquered one nation after another, they were increasing their power and their glory. An impressive nation was being built, but God looked down from heaven and he was not impressed. He saw not glory or splendor. He saw blood and iniquity. The very thing that Babylon did to try to secure their eternal stamp on this world, God saw was the very reason he would destroy them. Because the efforts of the kingdom of man to make a name for themselves will come to a sudden end. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Why is that? Because God is jealous for his glory and he will not share it with anyone else. Verse 14, why will he do this? Because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of his glory and not Babylon's. Not ours. So we consider the kingdom of man now. Let's consider in verse 14 the kingdom of Christ. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Those who rage against Christ and his kingdom will not stand because the Lord has ensured that his kingdom and his glory will fill his earth. Let's consider how this kingdom is described in verse 14. First, let's consider the nature of this kingdom. The nature of this kingdom. This kingdom is characterized by the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That is, the Lord will not only be known about, but he will be known for who he truly is. He will be known in his glory. Surely Habakkuk had in mind as he wrote this, the splendor of the glory of the Lord as seen in the temple or in the tabernacle under the old covenant. The priests would enter into the Holy of Holies and only once a year. Israel, if you ask them, is God with you? They said, oh yeah, God's with us. I know, there's that pillar of fire right there. That's what's in his mind. This knowledge that of God that only being in the very presence of God could bring, that is what will fill his earth. Intimate knowledge of God, his ways, his character. Now, where is that felt and known for us today? Not in a temple in Jerusalem, but 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We find the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ himself, in the true and better temple who is God with us, so that we might know the knowledge of the glory of the Lord in the gospel. This gospel which proclaims to us that although we once labored for our own glory in this world, right? We, this picture of Babylon is eerily similar to us, and do you know what that means? This judgment oracle, my friends, is for us. Because have we not used others for our own selfish ends? Have we not worked in this world for our own glory and not the glory of Christ? How often have we even 
Church on Sundays labored for ourselves and thought, I wonder what they think of me. But Christ came to take that judgment for us. This judgment oracle that's written of Babylon, Christ who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He gave himself a ransom for many and we are among them. So undeserving. We thought nothing of him or his kingdom or his people who he saved and yet he said, I want to buy that man. I want to buy that woman. Give me their judgment. I want it. And he changed us into people who say, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory, all out of free grace. So, so what that means is we read our New Testament, our Old Testament with these New Testament glasses on this knowledge of the glory of the Lord that's described here is only known in Christ and in his gospel. That's the description of this kingdom. It's describing a kingdom in which God is fully known in Christ and through his gospel, but it gets better than that. That's the description. Let's consider next the extent of this kingdom of Christ. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That, what's the extent? It's the earth. It's every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be filled with this knowledge of the glory of Christ. And if this language isn't explicit enough for us, the Lord gives us a picture. It's like the way the waters cover the sea. So the earth will be submerged in this knowledge of God in this free gospel of free grace. Babylon tried to do this. Christ will do this. Babylon then serves as nothing more than a mere foil for the kingdom of Christ, as do all expressions of the kingdom of man. Completely reversing Babylon's cruelty, we too are fishers of men, are we not? But, but in ways that call men and women away from their striving and away from their slavery into freedom in Christ and enjoying his gospel. And the kingdom of man, like Babylon, might pull in people like a net. But what is said of the kingdom of Christ? It's like a dragnet that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind until it was full. Christ, too, brings in a vast multitude that no man can number. And the terrifying description of Babylon is gloriously true of Christ. He gathers to himself all nations, and he collects for his own all peoples, that this kingdom will fill the earth because it is not built upon the blood of slaves and, and iniquity. It is built upon the blood of Christ and his righteousness, that that blood of Christ is so precious. Do you see it in the eyes of God the Father? That victory is certain. He said to his son, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. And my dear friends, God the son did not forget to ask. He asked the father and the father has given him the world. And so the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So let us say with Psalm 
72, 19, blessed be his glorious name and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. This vision encourages us, doesn't it? Oh my. But it confronts us as well. Because is this your experience? It wasn't Habakkuk's, and it's not ours. We, like Habakkuk, live between the time of promise of kingdom come and fulfillment of kingdom come, oftentimes with lament and questions and discouragement in the middle. Isn't it often true that people know about God, but they don't actually know God? There are so many that are opposed to God and his ways. And let me tell you, that's not just a problem in the United States. It's an international problem. A recent study found that Ethiopia, would you believe it, is the most religious country in the world. You might think Israel. You might think somewhere in the Middle East. You might think India. No, Ethiopia is the most religious country in the world. There are churches everywhere. But another recent study found that in the capital city of Ethiopia, Addis Ababa, only 3% of people understand and believe the true gospel. Let that sink in for a moment. In the most religious country on earth, in the capital city, 97% of those people are headed to a Christless eternity. The Ethiopian Orthodox is present throughout our city. We're much like the Catholic Church. The name of Jesus is known, but the gospel of Jesus is not known. As for the Protestant Church, they're more enslaved to false teaching in the prosperity gospel. I was teaching a class at a, another Bible school in Addis Ababa, and while I was teaching it, a young man in my class began having a seizure. It was over shortly, and I was prompted by another student to go ahead and keep teaching. I, I went up to him afterwards and asked if he was okay, if there was anything I could do for him. He said, oh no, this is normal. He said, you see, I've had epileptic seizures since birth. And then he looked at me, and through eyes of confusion and pain and even anger, he said, and I hate God, because God lied to me. I said, what do you mean? And, and he said, a prophet told me that if I only sold everything that I had and gave him the money, that God would heal me. And he didn't. Let me tell you, my friends, this is not an unusual story in our city. This is the average member of our church's backstory. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Romans 9 verse 9. The Lord says that's not enough. He must not be just heard of. He must be known. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But we're not there yet, are we? So what do we do? How do we live faithfully now in the time between promise of kingdom come and fulfillment of kingdom come with lament and questions and doubts and uncertainties in the middle? How do we live faithfully now? For that answer, let's look earlier in the chapter. Habakkuk 2, verses 2 through 4. The Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. 
For the vision still awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous will live by faith. That's the answer. We live by faith. We live a life of undisturbed confidence in the God who always accomplishes his will. Faithful trust. Steady confidence. Sure conviction that the Lord and his purposes and his ways and his kingdom will win. No matter how loudly or strongly the enemy rages against us. It's a life of inner stability in the midst of outer chaos. You know, part of faith, do you know this? Part of faith is believing that the Lord is accomplishing his purposes even when all current events in the political world, in my own life, in my own family, seem to deny it. No, 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 no. Part of faith is believing that even when I can't connect the dots, the Lord has already done that. And believing believing that he is at work in a million ways that I'm not even aware of. You know why? Because faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 What does this look like in the day to day? These verses here give us two principles that we'll look at, that will help us. The, The life of faith does two things. Number one, it works faithfully for the progress of the kingdom. And number two, it waits patiently for the fullness of the kingdom. Or, put more simply, we work faithfully and we wait patiently. The life of faith works faithfully and waits patiently. First, we work faithfully. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. He says this, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. The Lord wanted Habakkuk to make this message about his glory filling the earth clear Easy to remember, easy to repeat. Why? So that the person who has it may run with it. The Lord wanted this message to spread from person to person and house to house and city to city and nation to nation. How? Through people who heard it and ran with it. People like you and me who sit down with those they love and simply say, I've got something I've got to tell you. Jesus died for sinners. This might be the closest thing we get in the Old Testament to what will later become. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Run with it. So we must labor. We must run. We, we need to get our hands dirty. We must be at work for the spread of the kingdom in this world with confident assurance and unshakable faith that the Lord will be victorious. When the missionary William Carey argued in the late 1700s for the importance of international missions, he was told by an older member present in the room, young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do so without consulting you or me. Oh my, we hear that and we think, how could anyone say such a terrible thing? My friends, do we have unsaved 
family members and friends that maybe we pray for on occasions, but we have never shared the gospel with. The Lord uses means. He uses people like you and me. He uses invitations to church. He uses invitations to coffee. He uses moments when we say, hey, can I pray for you? We, we are members of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So let's labor for it with unshakable faith. The kingdom of man is laboring for nothing, in verse 12, not us. You see, when true confidence of the success of the kingdom of Christ sinks in, the result is always more evangelism, even in the face of impossible circumstances. John Knox records this in his journal when he came to preach the gospel in Newcastle. I was surprised. So much drunkenness, cursing, and swearing, even from the mouths of the little children. Do I never remember to have seen or heard in so small a compass of time? Surely this place is ripe for him who came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he records later in that same journal, God did so multiply our numbers that it appeared as if men had rained from the clouds. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Allow me to encourage you a bit with what the Lord is doing at our church in Odessawawa because so often we, we, judge, we judge the success of God's kingdom and the progress of God's kingdom by what's right in front of us. <laughs> when, when God has a worldwide perspective, so please allow me to share what he's done in Odessawawa. Trinity Fellowship launched in 2020 with just a few Ethiopians meeting in our pastor's living room. And since then, the Lord has grown our church, both in numbers of, and in our understanding of the gospel. And we've heard time and time again from people who come to our church that they had never heard the gospel before. And all of the churches they've been to, not until they came into Trinity Fellowship. And so in a city overrun by the prosperity gospel by Oriental Orthodoxy, and by Islam, Trinity Fellowship stands as a beacon of gospel hope by the grace of God. One woman who was deeply entrenched in the prosperity gospel and battling severe depression was tormented daily by the constant sound of multiple voices in her head. One day while the gospel was being preached at our church, all of those voices silenced. Replaced by one single, clear, gentle, and calm voice that said, Abigail, it's time to stop running. That day she received Christ. And not only was she freed from her mental anguish, more importantly, she was freed from the penalty of her sin. One man, after having come to believe the true gospel at our church, left his prosperity gospel preaching church to join Trinity Fellowship. His wife, however, believed that moving from her prosperity gospel church would mean moving from God's blessing. And so she said, if you follow this new gospel, <laughs> I will leave you. After many, many, many counseling sessions with the two of them, she demanded that he renounce Christ and the gospel or else she would divorce him. And he refused. 
a testimony to his faith in Christ. We also have members who have left multi-generational Ethiopian Orthodox families. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church has been at the forefront of persecuting the Protestant church in Ethiopia for generations. If we planted a church up in North Ethiopia, the Orthodox would kill us faster than the Muslims. But we have members of our church whose parents and grandparents and great-grandparents persecuted this Christ who their great-grandchildren now worship at our church. We have Muslim converts who are now shunned by their own communities that now find community with us. One of our members was recently stoned for preaching the gospel after returning to his Muslim village. He suffered an 80% hearing loss and he's, now a mem- and he's now a member of our pastor's college so that he can learn how to better share the gospel with those who once tried to kill him. Another member of our church who had our, her roots in animism, her grandmother, who was a practicing witch doctor, killed her mother through voodoo. During that time, she found our church and heard the gospel, which brought light and hope and clarity and joy in a time of great darkness for her. Truly, God's saving grace knows no bounds. Another man, a professing atheist, whose brother was a faithful member of our church, finally came to Trinity Fellowship after being invited time and time and time again. We spoke before the service, and he was cold. He was silent. He was uncaring. Then, as the service progressed and we finished our preaching, we then moved to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and to our surprise, he came up to the front to take the communion elements. We talked to him afterwards, and we said, we were clear, right? This is only for Christians. And he said, oh, I know. And we said, well, why did you come up today? And he said, because when that preacher said the words, this is my body and this is my blood, I knew deep in my heart that Christ had died for me. And we said, does that mean you're a Christian? He said, yes, today I got saved. He's just finished our membership classes, taken a membership interview, and he'll be baptized shortly before he joins our church in about a month. My dear friends, Aslan is on the move. Christ and his kingdom are coming, and our church now has about 200 members all with equally powerful stories of how they've been transformed by the gospel. And I I dare say a conservative estimate would be that 65% of them have been converted in the last two to three years. Christ and his kingdom will have the final say in history. We are not on the wrong side of history And no matter how loudly and how strongly the enemy rages against his church, he who sits in heaven laughs and says, This is my son. I have appointed him. He is the king of the world and he died to ransom it. Christ and his kingdom will win. His kingdom is coming, and my friends, it's worth giving our entire lives for. But that's not all this passage leaves us with. No, this, this passage comforts us with promises of victory, but also consoles us when victory seems so far off. We not only work faithfully, but number two, we wait patiently. Look at verse three. 
For the vision still awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The Lord wrote this verse because he knows our tendencies towards discouragement when things don't work out like we had hoped or in the way that we had hoped or in the time frame that we had hoped for them to work out. No, no, he knows. He sees that. And he's compassionate in that. That this verse gives us confidence that though the spread of Christ's kingdom in this world be slow, it won't be late. Like Gandalf, it arrives precisely when it means to. When it says here, it hastens to the end, it could be translated as it, it pants for the end, or it breathes for the end. There's a, a, a sense of the prophecy itself longing to be fulfilled in the words itself. Did, did you know that God shares our desire for his kingdom to come in this world? And he, he wants it even more than we do. That is such a comfort in the dark nights when the tears won't stop and the questions keep coming. Our God sees and knows and cares and, and he is working to bring his kingdom into this world even when we can't see it. And, and if it seems slow, wait for it. It's surely coming. It won't delay. Christ and his kingdom will surely come and as Calvin says in his sermon on this text, God will not disappoint you. If it seems slow, wait for it. And don't lose heart. My friends, when you see one wave of economic trouble after another, endless streams of corrupt politicians and policies, and more COVID variants than I can count at this point, and one war after another, if it seems slow, wait for it. Once again, our, our expectations, when they crumble beneath us and it feels like the rug is swept up and we're left on the floor, cold and alone and confused, keep waiting. In our zeal for the kingdom to come, let us not forget that our Lord said this, it grows like a tree. And that takes time. The life of faith works faithfully and waits patiently. After working faithfully and waiting patiently in India for five and a half years, the missionary William Carey finally saw his first convert. And on the evening of that convert's baptism, he wrote this in his journal. He was only one, but a continent was coming behind him. The divine grace which changed one Indian's heart could obviously change a hundred thousand. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, and that is enough. We can afford to work in faith, for omnipotence has pledged its promise. That's the model of working faithfully and waiting patiently. We, we look beyond our circumstances to the promises of God, and we work faithfully and we wait patiently. Now, if you want to know where to start, let me encourage you this. Start right here. Start in your homes. The, the place where maybe it's most hard to wait patiently, is it not? As you wait to see the kingdom finally affect your children, your spouse, yourself, you keep faithfully preaching the gospel to your family, oh, wait patiently and work faithfully. 
as you wait patiently and work faithfully for that sanctification, that sin that you, you desperately want rooted out of your heart, work faithfully. You've fallen again. Preach that gospel to your heart and wait for it to take root and wait patiently. And as you do the same in your neighborhood, do the same in your neighborhood, that neighbor who doesn't believe the gospel, keep telling them the gospel. Work faithfully and wait patiently. In your church, oh my, do you know when God has started revivals in the history of the world, do you know where he always starts? He does not start among the unbelievers. He starts in his church every time. So if you want to labor for the kingdom of Christ, look no further than the brothers and the sisters on the very same row you're sitting in. With them, work faithfully and wait patiently. Because one day our prayers, your kingdom come, will turn into this joyful celebration. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And let us work, let us, let us wait for that day and let us work, knowing that one day we will no longer be working, but we will be resting. You know, all of those labors you put into sharing the gospel, all of those labors you put into working the gospel into your own heart, into the heart of your family, one day you will not be working anymore. You will be resting and looking into the eyes of Christ. And you will find in him all of the rest that your weary soul needs so desperately. He will look you into the eyes and you know what he will say? Well done, good and faithful servant. You worked so hard in turn to the joy and the rest of your Lord. And one day we will no longer be waiting. We will no longer be working, and we will no longer be waiting, but we will see face to face, and we will be aware, oh, we will look into his eyes, and all of those doubts, and all of those confusions, and all of those sleepless nights, we will say, oh God, you were working, and I didn't even see it, I didn't even know it, but God, you were working, and Christ, you're worth it, you were worth the wait, and you were worth the, the trust as faith turns into sight. And he says, I carried you all the way. Because one day all will be made right. Our striving will be over. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray.